All right, guys, welcome back to All Y'all Palooza. We are putting out an episode every night this week. Wow, it has been a crazy ride, Sarah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Chris got poison ivy. I got a little stomach bug. We just, we're maxed out, but we're doing this anyway. I'm really excited about tonight's episode. Um, Chris, let me pose a question to you. Sure. Let's say at the ripe age of 26, your boss walked in and said, Chris, you're going to be directing Orson Welles in a commercial for a bank. I would poop my pants. And then they were like, get to work writing the words he's actually going to say. Uh, it would be, uh, the pants would be full of poop. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, it's just such an incredible story to think that our friend Judy Williams was tasked with writing a commercial for Orson Welles and then sent to California to, I guess, kind of oversee the production. Yeah. I mean, it's Orson freaking Wells. Yeah. It's Citizen Kane. And I just want to say, if anybody is completely capable of it, it's Judy. She's one of the most incredible people I have ever met. Um, she's a dear friend of both Chris and I. We both really learned how to work in the professional world underneath her guidance. Very and, much so. Hugely inspiring person. Yeah. Um, and we, <sighs> we are just really excited to share the story of hers from very early on in her career. Um, and also, we want to take the opportunity to thank Judy. She really gave us the gumption and a lot of support to start um, our live storytelling event and our podcast. Absolutely. One of our very first supporters. And there would probably not be an all y'all without Judy Williams. Yeah. Thanks, Judy. So check out this story. It's one of the most unusual and unforgettable brush with fame stories that we've that I've ever heard. Yeah. So the thing is, is, I have never heard any of these stories directly from you. Oh, okay. I've heard all of these stories through Chris, right. through other people who have heard about you working right. with Horse and Wells. <laughs> and obviously, everything I heard is not correct because I've heard <laughs> Horse and Wells came to Shreveport. Never. Everybody thinks that. Everyone thinks That's that. That's because the way we shot it, it looked as if he might have been. We shot it. We shot a couple outside and a couple inside in a home in Santa Monica, and it was a huge oak tree on purpose because I'd written some copy that started, if this old tree could talk, it would tell you what it had seen through two world wars and a Great Depression, and obviously we were talking about how long the bank had been around. So it, it looked like it could have been Shreveport, but it wasn't. It was okay. Santa Monica. So the, the other thing I, I have heard, and maybe I have even made this up, is that this was for a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> no, I'll tell you why you probably think that. We had the McDonald's account, too, when I was at Jack Hodges, and we made a lot of spots for McDonald's, and Kate and Michael were each in McDonald's commercials, for, locally, regionally. You guys were working for a bank, it sounds like? First National Bank, which is now Chase. I was part of Carter Advertising, Carter Williams Public Relations. But this was Carter Advertising that did these spots, but I, because I was a writer, they asked me to write them. So um, we thought it would be really cool that Bank wanted to say, you know, what would convey how long we've been around? We want people to know what great history and, you know, to take us seriously. And so we said, what if we got Orson Welles? How cool would that be? And I'm telling you, you know, it was expensive even back then. I mean, it was really pricey. So we ended up going to for Orson Welles and setting up the spots with him, and we started out through his agent, but he let me know very quickly after we first worked with him, here's my private, this is how I got his phone number, here's my private phone number, 
there's no need to call my agent. <laughs> Just call me directly. He don't want to pay his agent the 10%. Just call me directly in the future and I'll do this work for you. So, you know, that's how we ended up with Orson. Um, so what was the concept? Like, it sounds like you remember some of the lines that he had to deliver. I, I definitely do, and I'll tell you why I remember that. The first one we, we did was outside because of the weather, and we were going to do some inside, and I think there were three television spots and some radio spots, but the first one was in front of this oak tree. If this oak tree could talk, who knows what tales it would tell, or I don't remember what the line was. But I remember that specifically because, you know, he had this enfant terrible reputation. I was terrified of him. You know, here I was, this kid. And he said that he got on set and he said this line. And I looked at my business partner, Bill Bailey, and went, whoa, <laughs> you know, I wrote that? I mean, it didn't even sound like I wrote it the way he said it. And he said this line and it was just amazing. And then he said, who wrote this copy? Mike over there and I said I did and he said it's wonderful and so then I was just putty in his hands you know <laughs> and after that you know I learned quickly that I couldn't talk directly to him because we were on an LA union set and so I started talking to him and the producer said to me no 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 you can't talk to the talent and you can't talk to the director you can only talk to me so I could only talk to Orson on the breaks when they were changing the sets. But he told me some amazing stories. One of the stories he told me was, before I knew I couldn't talk to anybody or touch anything. You know, I was so used to doing TV spots myself. So I was looking at the, the background behind him inside, and there was some books showing that I didn't want to show. So I just went up and moved them. And the producer came up and said, touch something on the set again, and they will set the shut the set down. Plus, Orson's guy, I mean, we were amazed, this is in 1983, Orson's guys, um, he had a limo driver who took, and I paid for the limo, who took credit cards and had it in his trunk, and we were just so amazed that a limo driver would take credit cards back <laughs> in and had the, the card thing in his truck. Now you just do it on a square. So did he have, like, an entourage? Like, did he have people that traveled with him? It was just, just um, Orson. Wow. Just Orson, Yeah. He had, um, I think the limo driver was one he used a lot because he had the wheelchair. He helped Orson get in and out of the wheelchair. But Orson, you can see him in the shot smoking that big cigar. He smoked cigars the whole time, and he joked with me that Castro thought he was a supporter because he brought so many Cuban cigars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, was, he was a character. I mean, that's a great word for him. He was a real character. Judy, one thing um, you had referred to being a kid, when when you uh, directed Orson Welles in a commercial, <laughs> right? Uh, how old were you? Well, let's see. If that was eighty two, twenty six. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, I was really a baby, and you know, he was past his prime, really. I mean, it's ironic because what was he when he did Citizen Kane? Twenty five. He was quite yeah. young when he did Citizen Kane, and and he did some great things after that. But after that, you know, he got a reputation for being difficult. People didn't want to work with him. His real thing that he wanted to do when I met him was to do King Lear. And he specifically wanted to do it because Lawrence Olivier, or Larry as he called him, had done it. And he wanted to do his after Olivier so people would compare 
his and Olivier's Lear and compare his to be better. So, but he couldn't get the funding. He couldn't get the funding. And I think part of it was that he became, you know, he had this reputation for being very difficult to work with. So he was doing television commercials. He did a wine. I can't remember. I think it was maybe Ernest and Julio Gallo. Well, Judy, did you find him difficult to work with? No, he was delightful. He was absolutely delightful. But, you know, I I was such a kid, I think he took pity on me. I think he liked my copy that I had written, and I think he took pity on me. And I think also um, I was an adoring young girl. You know, I was an adoring person who was just asking him a million questions and interested in him and enthusiastic and he loved that you know I think that's why he asked me to dinner was because I was just wow tell me more about Citizen Kane and and he would tell these great stories and so when we went to dinner I went home to the hotel and wrote notes just and I found them just so I wouldn't forget what he had said because he was so interesting so he was delightful. So your dinner is also something yeah. that other people have told me about, but you have not told me. Okay, so what have you heard? <laughs> <laughs> so I have heard that Orson Welles had a number of dogs in the dining room. He did have him. a dog. His, he had a little poodle. I've forgotten his name. I wrote it down in my notes. But um, we went to Mamaison, which at the time was the hot place in Hollywood or L.A. And obviously they knew him, and we came in a limo. He picked me up at the hotel in a limo, and... Um, we we stepped out, and I was the first one out. They opened the door, and paparazzi were there. I couldn't believe it. They were taking my picture. I called Michael that night to say, I'm going to be in People magazine. I just know it. <laughs> of course, they were taking my picture, waiting for the celebrity who was going to get out. But <clears throat> we went in, and he had this little dog, and there was a private room, and we were the only people in it. And the little dog sat under a sign in French that said, we are not allowed to have dogs in the dining room or something. <laughs> but it had its own little ramekin of water that they served it. And they were obviously used to Orson bringing his dog in with him. So there was no flap about that. One of the stories he told was why he made bad movies. Because I said, so you made, you know, what's it like to be 25? He told me, by the way, that in the scenes where he's real young, you know, when he first gets into the newspaper business, he said, I had a weight problem even then, and they scotch-taped my jowls up. He said, you can't see it, but underneath my hair is scotch-tape. They scotch-taped my jowls up because I was already starting to be kind of fleshy, and they wanted me to look young and firm. But he said, uh, I said, what was it like to have that be so acclaimed and then have to follow that up? And he did a number of other well-received movies, but he said... You know, people ask me this in a different way all the time. Why do you make bad movies? And he said, I continued making movies because I'm an actor, and that's what actors do. And he said, if you ask, it obviously kind of a competitive thing with Laurence Olivier. And he said, if you ask Larry Olivier, he'll tell you the same thing. You know, all our movies aren't great because we want to act. You know, we want to act and we'll do what's offered to us. He told me that his father gave him money to travel around Europe alone at 10 on the train, which I just found hard to believe, except that was another time that maybe would have been, I don't know, maybe the 20s, the 30s? I don't know when that would have been. Yeah, maybe I guess the so. 30s. The I 30s. Guess. And so I thought, well, at first I thought he was just spinning a tail, but then later I thought, well, maybe that was possible. You know, who knows? And then when we left, people had, had come kind of around that dining room to go up the stairs 
And I said, who goes upstairs? Who gets to go upstairs? And he said, people from Duluth get to go upstairs. Duluth, Minnesota. I don't remember if it if he told me at dinner or during one of the breaks on set, but um, <clears throat> he was supposed to give a speech in Italy. <clears throat> and he was a pilot. And he was flying to the speech, and he said, I got hopelessly lost, and nothing was working, and my maps didn't make any sense. And so the only thing I could think of to do was I would see a railroad station, and I remembered from World War II that railroad stations always had their names on the name of the city on the side of the railroad station. So I would go in and just buzz the town and fly low enough to read the name of the city on the railroad station and then find it on the map and say, oh, okay, now I know where I am. So he said, finally, I, I was so lost, I ran out of fuel and I crash landed in a field. And this farmer came to get me and I was so apologetic and I said, you know, I'm so sorry, but I was supposed to to have this dinner speech. I'm the keynote speaker. And he said, oh, well, that's right down the street. So he said, finally, he got me there. It's 11 o'clock at night, I think, you know, these poor people. And he said, they're just getting wound up. It's Italy. You know, they're having a great time. They were delighted to see me. We just had a wonderful time together. What a great story. Yeah. It seems like you were able to sort of, it seems like you made contact with him a few times after that, if I remember. I did. And did you ever see one another again? Or did you... We did. I went the next year to do a series of radio spots. I called him direct because he told me, you know, don't, don't bother my agent with this. So um, I called him and we did a series of radio spots. And so, and then I talked to him, I think, one other time before he died. He had a man who lived with him named Prince something. And he gave me his phone number and he would say, tell Prince so-and-so is going to answer the phone. Tell him I gave you the number and to go get me. So um, I called, and, and Prince so-and-so would say, he's swimming, he'll have to call you back. <laughs> but, but I spoke to him, I think, one other time before he died. And then I found out he died. I was going down to the Red River Revel to help sell bricks for the city of Shreveport's something that they were raising money for. And I think a reporter called me to tell me he had died. And, and I was sad, you know, I was sad, because even though he wasn't a close friend, I did feel like I had gotten to know him and known about his family and his aspirations, and I knew what he wanted to do at the end of his life that he never got to do. But I got I heard some great stories about Citizen Kane and his family and the Magnificent Ambersons, which he says is his family. He said that's based on my family. So, you know, really interesting. I get the impression that when you went to dinner with him, for example, he very much still believed that there was like a second coming of Orson Welles. Absolutely. He knew there would be. I mean, he was working in France then to try to cobble together enough money, and there he, there was an heiress in France that he was kind of wooing to try to give him the money to do the production in France, but he was bound and determined to do King Lear. He was not in great health. I was shocked when he came to the set because he was in a wheelchair. He just was so heavy, you know, and you would see him on talk shows, and he'd walk out with a cane, but I think that was mostly a facade. Now, when we walked to and from the restaurant, he walked with two canes, but he just was so heavy. And when I was with him, I ate twice as much as he did. I mean, he didn't eat very much, so I don't know if it was just, you know, the the weight over the years or what it was, but he was not in great health, obviously. Gee, was there anything that you learned from this experience that you feel like you still are like, I'm really glad I learned that then 
and not later? Well, you know, um, it was interesting to have one some of my first experiences. I had done some some broadcast production in Shreveport, but this was the first time I'd ever done anything this big. So obviously, I learned a lot about working with unions and sets and scouting locations and things like that. But I guess one of the things that I really realized was that I was not very much different from anybody else. I mean, I really was a little intimidated that he would be reading copy that I wrote, that there was this big mega super, superstar reading my copy. And he liked it, and it sounded good. And, you know, even though I didn't know how to work with the unions, the spots turned out to be great spots. And so, you know, I guess I got a little confidence in myself that, you know, people are people all over, and talent is talent. And, you know, he made what I wrote sound wonderful, obviously. So a great experience all right don't forget folks i hope you enjoyed that story but there are going to be seven more wonderful stories on uh, saturday september 13th at all y'all under the influence that's this saturday that's this saturday and tickets are selling really fast so if you want to get in the door buy your tickets in advance at allyallblog.com don't wait